You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. It is my great privilege to be here, and I feel very, very humbled to be here. And what I'd like to do first is take the opportunity to link uh, some of the songs that we were singing this evening with what the Cummings are doing in Chad. I don't know if it was intentional for those of you who led us so beautifully in the singing, but there was a lovely connection, and the theme of the songs was the glory of God. I don't know if you saw that. Crown him with many crowns, his glories now I see. Another song said, I see the king of glory. And another one, you are the king of glory. Now, what has that got to do with what the Cummings are seeking to accomplish in Chad? Well, Elizabeth let the cat out of the bag. She said, as they have been, um, as Ewan explained, why literacy before translation so people themselves can read the word? And Elizabeth said something like, God has revealed himself through his word. Except you said it through tears, and I'm just like saying it like this. <laughs> God has revealed himself through his word. So let me define the glory of God, because we sing about it a lot, and sometimes the words can kind of roll off our lips without much thought. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. And so if you were to visit the Cummings in Eastern Chad, no electricity, is that what you said? No electricity? If you were to get there uh, on one clear night and there's no sort of like pollution in the sky from the the clouds or smog, there's no light pollution and it's pitch black and you look up and you try and count the stars as my wife and I used to try and do on the other side of Africa, on the left-hand side in West Africa in the Gambia and you kind of go dizzy trying to count the stars and you say, wow, the infinity of God. That is the glory of God. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. Or if you sort of travel throughout the world and you, you're on this flat plain and you all of a sudden come across this magnificent mountain range that you go, for goodness sake, where did that come from? You say, wow, the power of God, that he could make that. That is the glory of God. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. If you see a newborn baby and, and, and you're there, post-birth and you count the fingers and the toes and you say, wow, the detail of God. That is the glory of God. If you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see the Lord Jesus there in your place and you say, wow, the love of God. That is the glory of God. If you read this book and study it for yourself and realize that actually it, there's 66 little books in here, but it's one story, and it's all connected, and you read it from cover to cover, and you say, wow, the plan of God, that is the glory of God. 
If you looked in the mirror this morning when you got up out of bed and said, my goodness, the grace of God, that he would love me. That is the glory of God. The glory of God is anything that makes God seen. And as you and Elizabeth and the kids head back to Chad, it's all about the revelation of God, making God seen through his word, that people themselves can see who this God is and wrestle with his claims and make a decision about what they do with what they read. So I just feel so humbled to come and open up this word through which God has revealed himself. And I'm going to read to you a story that many of you will be very familiar with, which is always dangerous, because you can easily switch off and say, well, I kind of know that bit. And kind of like, you can stare at me while I'm talking, but I know that some of you will be in your happy place, and you'll just be pretending to listen. But I challenge you to listen in to God's word and see what God has to say. So this famous story is in Luke chapter 10, and it starts in verse 25, and it goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. You think that would be the end of the story, but listen to what happens next. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins. He gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's a pretty famous passage, isn't it? What I'd like for us to do this evening is look at it under three headings so that we can kind of cement it in our minds and maybe think about it later. Here's the three headings, the setting, the story, and the sequel. 
the setting, the story, and the sequel. It starts with the setting. It goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This lawyer was not like a solicitor today. He was a lawyer who studied the law of Moses. Um, the books in the Bible that are called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was his sphere of expertise. This man was a lawyer studying the law of Moses. And he hears that there's a new rabbi in town, and his name is Jesus. And he's going around sort of speaking wonderful, wonderful words. People are listening. And sometimes there are thousands of people gathering around, pressing in to try and hear those words. And he's performing these incredible deeds, miracles, doing wonderful things. And the lawyer comes to Jesus, asking the question, does this Jesus, does this new rabbi really know his stuff? So he comes to Jesus to test him with questions. And the particular question he asked to start, kick the whole thing off, is this. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you notice a fallacy in the question? Teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. If you know the story of the Christian faith, you will know there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. If you know the story of your own life and how weak and frail and faulty you are, you know there's nothing you can do to impress God. The Bible teaches us that salvation is a gift the only thing you can kind of do is say thank you. The only thing you can do is receive the gift that God has put on offer through his son, Jesus Christ. But this lawyer, he's probably looking for some magnanimous deed that he can perform. And if he can just find out what that thing is and do it, I don't care what it is, teacher, just tell me what it is and I'll do it. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus shows himself to be this expert teacher. What do the really good teachers do? What do the really good teachers do at school? You ask them a question, and they say, well, what do you think? Well, you say, that's a ridiculous thing to ask me. I ask you the question because I don't know. I used to hate that when I was at school. You ask a question, teacher, I don't know the answer to this question. Can you help me? And they say, well, what do you think the answer is? And you say, well, I wouldn't have asked the question if I'd known the answer. But really good teachers are smart. And they make students think. And even if you can't figure out the answer, they know it's good for you to wrestle with it. So Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, well, what do you think? How do you read the law? You're the expert. You're the lawyer. You're the one who studied the Pentateuch. What's your answer to the dilemma? 
And the lawyer is brilliant in his answer. I'll read it to you. Verse 27, the lawyer replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer says that in the Old Testament, there are two primary commandments. The first one is love God totally. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 comes immediately after Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Do you know what verse 4 says? Verse 4 is the creed of all Judaism. So if, if, every Jew who goes to a Sabbath, to any synagogue anywhere in the world, will hear these words. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And verse 5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Verse 5 is the practical application of verse 4. Verse 4 says there's only one God. Verse 5 says if there's only one God, then you love that God totally. And then he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which reads, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Now, the reason I say this answer is brilliant is because this lawyer takes all the laws of the Old Testament, and there are more than 600, and distills them into two primary commands. Love God totally, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And anyone who can do that knows his stuff. This guy is an expert in the law of Moses, just like Luke said in verse 25. This guy is brilliant. A bit like Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein, E equals MC squared. That's genius. Our whole nuclear system is built on that tiny little premise. All the laws of the universe distilled into this little equation. E equals MC squared. Energy equals mass times the square of the speed of light. That's genius. And this lawyer does the same thing. 613 laws in the Old Testament, and he distills them into two simple commands. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do you think? Jesus says to the lawyer, and he says, love God totally and love your neighbor as you love yourself. We know it's a really good answer because the Lord Jesus says this, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. That's all you have to do. Just love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that could have been the end of the conversation. Except this man is smitten to the core with conviction like every thinking person would be. Because nobody loves God. Totally. 
Nobody loves their neighbor like they love themselves. Well, not all the time. And so this lawyer, just like a lawyer would today, says, well, let's define the terms. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Notice he doesn't say anything about the first commandment. He doesn't say anything about the first commandment because who are you to argue with someone who says, well, I love God totally. Well, God knows if you do and you know if you do, but who am I to argue with you? But as soon as you say, love your neighbor as you love yourself, then you have to ask the question, well, who's my neighbor? Because if my neighbor is a member of my family, well, I love them like I love myself. Most of the time. If my neighbor is a dear friend, well, I love them like I love myself. Occasionally. If my neighbor is a stranger, I might die for that person. If my neighbor is a noble person, I might, in a moment of heroism, give my life for that person. But if my neighbor is someone I hate, someone I despise, well, I don't love them like I love myself, just by the very definition of the terms. I just said I hate them. How can I say I love them? So I have to ask the question, who is my neighbor? It's a very good question. And to answer that question, Jesus tells the story, a story that you know well. It starts in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Don't know how familiar you are with the geography in that part of the world, but Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. And Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. That's a pretty steep journey. This is a part of the Rift Valley. It runs all the way from north of the northern part of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea and into the heart of Africa. It's the deepest fault in the world. If you're standing at the Dead Sea, you are standing at the lowest place you can be on planet Earth. And Jesus says there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem, down to Jericho, and as he made that journey, he fell into the hands of the robbers. It's about a 25-kilometer walk. It's undulating at first, but the last bit is this precipitous drop. And, and the area is made up of a limestone that's very soft and, and it weathers over time. And crevices are formed, dens or caves are formed. Brilliant places for very bad people to hide and, uh, and prey upon unsuspecting travelers. That's exactly what happens here. As this man is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he falls into the hands of robbers and, and they beat him up. They strip him. So humiliating. It's a brutal attack. And they leave him half dead on the side of the road. Well, the first person to come onto the scene in verse 31 is a priest. Listen to what it says. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Isn't that interesting? Why would he do that? 
Well, we can't say dogmatically why he passed by on the other side, but the direction in which he's traveling might give us a clue. It says a priest happened to be going down that same road. Notice it doesn't say he was traveling up the road. He's traveling down the same road, down from Jerusalem towards Jericho. And he was a priest. Contrary to what most of us understand, the majority of the priests in those days didn't live in Jerusalem. But that's where the temple was. Most of them lived in outlying towns. Uh, one of their favorite towns, one of the favorite homes for priests was Jericho. It's a nice place to live. A thousand years earlier, King David had divided the priests into 24 choruses, they were called, or 24 groups. And he assigned them this responsibility. You know what their job was? Twice a year, they would travel up to Jerusalem, perform their responsibilities in the temple for a whole week, and then travel home. And then later in the year, they had to do it again for another week. Well, it's not a bad job. Twice a year, travel to Jerusalem, perform your responsibilities in the temple, and then go back home. Could you imagine what would have happened if this priest who had visited the temple where God presenced himself in a way that was special? It's different today. But in those days, God made himself present in a way he didn't presence himself elsewhere in the world. Somehow God chose to do that. And this priest had been in the temple in the presence of God. And imagine if on the way home he came upon a man who was bleeding, unclean, and tended to his wounds and then went back home to his city in Jericho defiled. He'd be a laughingstock. What an embarrassment. He's been in the temple of God in Jerusalem, the holiest place in the world. And imagine if he was defiled by touching someone who had blood and was beaten up. We can't say dogmatically why he passed by on the other side, but this priest is traveling down the same road. He sees the guy, and he passes by on the other side. That brings us to verse 32, and the Levite. It says, so too, when uh, the Levite came upon the scene, he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. And we don't know why, but why do you reckon? Maybe he saw danger. This is a very difficult part of the road. It's the steep bit. It's where the limestone has weathered. It's where evil people could be watching. And if they did that to him, the Levite might think, what would they do to me? It's possible that he saw danger. He was a bit frightened. Possible that he saw a nuisance. Blimey, Charlie, if I help this guy and it's going to take time and I can't be bothered, I don't even know him. It's possible that he saw an expense. The guy's obviously got nothing. If I stop to help him, it's going to cost me something. I don't know why, but he passed by on the other side. And that brings in verses 33 to 35, the Samaritan onto the scene. Now, you realize that the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, right? They despised each other. The Jews hated the Samaritans for a number of reasons. One reason was that the 
Samaritans were not full-blooded Jews. Very racist of them, but they hated them for it. Um, my wife isn't full-blooded anything either. She's not a, a, she's not a black African. She's not a white African. She's this colored South African girl. And a few years ago, when I had the wonderful privilege of visiting where she lived until she was 16, we went to beaches that she wasn't allowed to set foot on because she was a colored girl and she was a teenager and she was a kid. She showed me the post office where her grandmother used to live right next door, and there's a set of entry steps here and a set of entry steps there, and she said, those are the steps we had to use. Those steps were for white people. Those steps were for non-whites. She showed me her school, and a very kind teacher gave us a little tour, and that was the school she could attend. In the local park, she showed me the drinking fountain that was for whites only. For some reason, we have this thing that skin color kind of means something significant, and we despise people if they're not like us. Strange, happens all over the world. And the Jews hated the Samaritans because they weren't full-blooded Jews. But you know what really made the Jews angry? The Samaritans had their own temple in Shechem. They had their own Bible. It was called the Samaritan Pentateuch. They had their own priests. And the Jews despised them for that. And the feelings were reciprocated. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And here comes a Samaritan on Jewish territory. And he's walking this difficult part of the journey. And he sees the man. And instead of passing by on the other side, he goes to him and, and kind of like nurses him. The Bible says that the story says that he takes some wine and pours them on his cuts because it would have antiseptic value. And he takes oil and massages them into his bruises because that would be soothing. And he gets bandages, which I don't know if you've ever thought where they came from. They didn't come from the man's clothing. He was left naked. And I don't think they carried first aid kits in their donkeys in those days. My guess is he takes his own clothing and sort of fashions a bandage somehow and very kind. If that weren't enough, you'd think that would be pretty good. If that weren't enough, he picks him up, puts him on his donkey, and he walks while the stranger rides, takes him to an inn, nurses him the whole night. So he's walked all day, and now he nurses him all night. It's exhausting. And in the morning, he goes to the innkeeper, and he says, here's two silver coins. The silver coin was a denarius. Denarius was a day's wage. So two days' wages for this complete stranger. He gives it to the innkeeper and he says, this should cover the cost, but I'll be back uh, later. And if it costs more, just let me know and I'll pay the bill. Wow. And that's the end of the story, which brings us to the third and final part, the sequel. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? You say, wait a minute, Lord, you twisted the question. Did you note that? 
The question the lawyer asked was, who is my neighbor? And the answer we would give is, well, that poor guy got beaten up. That's the neighbor. But Jesus says, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? The, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And you can tell that this lawyer hates them. He hates uh, the Samaritans. He can't even frame the word with his lips and spit it out. He won't even say Samaritan. He says, uh, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. There are many things that we can learn from this fantastic story. Let me mention just three. Three kind of lessons so that we can be more than hearers of the word, we can be doers of the word. In other words, what difference does the word of God make to me? What difference does it make? Here's the first lesson. It's not enough to see a need. It's not enough to see a need. In the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, it reads, Idon, Idon, Idon. And when he saw him, and when he saw him, and when he saw him, all three saw the same situation. Two passed by on the other side, and one did something constructive about what he saw. The priest saw him and passed by on the other side. The Levite saw him and passed by on the other side. The Samaritans saw him and went to him. I embarrass myself. I marvel at the hardness of my own heart. I see a need, oftentimes, and I pass by on the other side. People ask me for money. People ask me for my time. People ask me to help. And I can't respond to every situation, emotionally, physically, financially. But frankly, I could do more than I do. I see a need, and I pass by on the other side. Do you know that there are three and a half billion Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in the world, and 86% of those people don't know a follower of Jesus Christ. There are 35 million slaves in the world, 20 million orphans in the world. Half the world lives on less than $2 a day. A billion people live on less than $1 a day. Every single hour, 115 children become prostitutes. 63,000 people died today in places where there's no church. So, okay, well, now we know the need. It's not enough to see a need. It's not enough to see a need. Here's the second lesson. What you do 
It depends on what you see. What you do depends on what you see. Why did the priest pass by on the other side? Well, he probably saw ceremonial defilement. Why did the Levite pass by on the other side? He probably saw danger, or a nuisance, an inconvenience, an expense. Why did the Samaritan stop and show mercy? Because he saw a neighbor. What you do always depends on what you see. My wife and I were visiting some friends in um, Turkey a few weeks back and uh, in Afghanistan the week before that. And the girl in Afghanistan, Aussie girl, has been serving there for seven years. Uh, we talked about security and about what happens if something geopolitical kind of happens here and you need to get out of the country for a season. And she started to cry. And I said to her, why are you crying like Elizabeth? Except she doesn't know you, Elizabeth. I'm like, why are you crying? She said, I can't leave. I think I'm the only person who visits these women in prison and tells them about Jesus. It's illegal to do that here. I have to be very, very careful. Prison guards are watching, but also other prisoners are listening. But she said, I know I'm bringing hope and light and the opportunity for eternal life to these women. She does that twice a week. She also spends three days a week visiting boys in an orphanage. She took my wife to the prison. I couldn't go because it's a female prison. But I could go to the orphanage because it's little boys and uh, sort of like age range from very tiny to teens. And as she spoke with them in Farsi, I don't understand the language, uh, Dari, in Dari, she was sharing the good news of Jesus with these kids as they asked questions, just little kids. And they asked her, why are you here? And what's it like in your country? And what do people believe in your country? It's amazing how in other parts of the world people ask very deep questions, even kids. And when I asked her about, well, what if you had to leave for a while if, things, if the heat got turned up? She cried, I can't go. I think I'm the only person telling these boys in this orphanage and these women in this prison about who Jesus is and the hope they can find in him. What you do depends on what you see, and she sees very needy people. I bet you could do that. I bet you could visit an orphanage and earn the right to speak about Jesus, or visit women in a prison, or guys go to a men's prison week after week after week. Take you a couple of years to learn the language. Once you've got the language under your belt, it takes you five minutes to tell the story of Jesus. The third lesson is a more basic principle. The first one is it's not enough to see a need. The second one is what you do depends on what you see. The third lesson is what you see depends on what you are. What you see depends on what you are. Because he was a neighbor, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the robbers or the one who showed mercy? 
See, the Samaritan was a neighbor, and because he was a neighbor, he saw a neighbor. We even teach this principle to little kids. See if you can remember this, either not very long ago or many, many years ago. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a mouse under her chair. So this cat decides to catch a flight from Tullamarine Airport all the way to London. It's a long way. And it probably went on a Qantas Emirates co-chair thing via Dubai. And it's a very clever cat. And it lands in London. And once it gets through immigration, which can take a couple of hours, actually, at Heathrow Airport, and it gets through immigration, instead of going to visit Big Ben or St. Paul's Cathedral or go for a cruise on the River Thames or go on the London Eye or do any of those other famous things, guess what the cat does? It makes its way to where? Buckingham Palace. Why? Because that's where the Queen is. And it's on one of those very, very rare occasions when Buckingham Palace is open to cats. And uh, the cat walks in and goes into the throne room, and there's the queen on her throne. And she's got this incredible outfit on. I mean, she's the queen. She's the second longest living monarch in the world after the king of Thailand. It's the queen. She's got a crown on it, and it's got lots of jewels on it, and she's got a golden scepter, and she's got all her amazing, and, she, and the cat walks in, and there's the queen. And what does the cat see? A mouse under her chair. Why does it see a mouse? Because it's a cat. What you see depends on what you are. So I'll finish with this question. What do you see when you see people? The answer to that question is a reflection of your own heart. Because what you see depends on what you are. So what do you see when you see a, a drunk, an alcoholic, somebody really poor, or somebody very different to you, somebody filthy rich, Somebody from another culture, someone who speaks another language, someone from a place where they don't even know that Jesus is Lord. What do you see when you see people? There's a wonderful little verse in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verse 16. It goes like this. It was the Apostle Paul writing probably his third letter to the church at Corinth. And he says, he's been speaking about the ministry of reconciliation. He's been speaking about the fact that people can actually be reunited with their creator. And he says, because of that, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Isn't that a great verse? Paul says, because of Jesus, from now on, we don't view people the way the world views people. We now view people the way Jesus views people. And how does Jesus view people? 
worth dying for. So what do you see when you see people? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to take this precious word of yours and because of it and by it and through it, reveal the glory of God. Would you help us make God seen as we share his word with other people? Please help us to see people the way Jesus sees people. We ask it in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.